It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to a data special of Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor of The Economist, and coming up... I speak to Jenny Tennyson and Peter Wells of the Open Data Institute in Britain about a new trial they're doing on data trusts. We want to explore with the city, is a data trust going to increase trust in that data and help people use it more to solve problems? And how sharing mapping data by the big web platforms could unlock more value for companies and society. This is the digital representation of our spatial world, made available freely for every kind of service and app that requires a location. But first, I'm joined in the studio by Ravi Naik and Tanya O'Carroll to discuss the latest developments around Britain's Metropolitan Police Services gang mapping database, known as Gang Matrix. It was launched in 2012, and it was in response to the 2011 London riots. It holds the details of around 3,500 people, each who are given a green, amber, or red rating, denoting their perceived risk of being involved in gang and gang violence. It also stores their full name, date of birth, home address, and information on whether someone is a firearms offender or knife carrier. Ravi Nayak is a lawyer specializing in data and human rights at ITN Solicitors. Tanya O'Carroll leads Amnesty International's Global Technology and Human Rights Program. Hello and welcome to Babbage. Hi. Hi. So my first question to you, Tanya, is what is the Gangs Matrix? So the Gangs Matrix is, um, is London Metropolitan Police's database of suspected gang members for the whole of the London area. You said it's about three to 4,000 people on it. Our research and data released by the Met shows that about 80% of people on the database are black, 99% are male, most of them are between the ages of 18 and 24, and you've got some children on there as well. So about 100 of, of the people on the matrix are actually children as young as 12. So for the question of public safety, this might be a good thing. What's the problem with the gang's matrix? So our research, which we've been conducting over the last 18 months, pretty much shows that at every level, the database has been set up and operating for the last seven or eight years with almost no regard to data protection law. And that's been confirmed by the Information Commissioner's Office investigation, which was published on Friday. Really, at every level, the individuals that are on it Their data has been breached. It's been shared online. It's been shared with so many partner organisations outside the police, from health to schools, across the council to housing associations. And many of the people on it, up to about 40%, aren't actually really involved with any serious violent offending. And it's not really clear why they're on the database in the first place. So a database that gets shared sounds like what a database does. And a database that has incorrect information seems like one that's just imperfect. Ravi, why is this a bigger problem than just how I've made it out? Picking up on what Tanya said, I think whether the the system exists is maybe beside the point. The way the ICOs looked at this is about data protection principles, fairness, transparency, 
oversight. All of these fundamental parts of data protection are missing in the way the system operates. Nobody's saying that the system cannot operate, but the way it exists in its current form is a problem. So what would you want to see in a gang's matrix? One of the fundamental problems here, as Tanya's alluded to, is there's a number of people on the database that just shouldn't be there. And a lack of oversight causes that problem and it aggravates the problem because it causes other people that are associated with wrongly included people to be included on. The requirement for fairness within data protection law as a principle is so fundamental because it stops this kind of misidentification. Who would do the oversight? Well, there are a number of mechanisms. The ICO, for example, could act as an overseer and does act as an overseer. The problem is the ICO could only intervene as they have done because of the work that Amnesty International did. I'll also just jump in on on oversight because um, the mayor's office, so Sadiq Khan, she does have a a role to play here as well. And they're currently doing a review into the matrix, which will also be published in the next few weeks. It's about a year's worth of their own investigation. And they themselves recognise the need for oversight. I think actually nobody in this whole discussion, including the Metropolitan Police, thinks that is sort of defending the way that the database currently is. There's a recognition of the need for oversight and that probably that would also involve community groups to some extent, as well as organisations like Amnesty. Ravi, since you're at the, the knife's edge of this in terms of law, what do you think of the response of the establishment, both the police as well as other institutions in Britain, to the ICO's report, although it's, it's very recent, and to the public outcry against the gang's matrix? Do you feel that, that institutions recognise that they probably don't need this data, that they've not handled it very well and that they need to reform what they do? Or is there a complacency still? I think part of the issue we have here is what are the Met Police going to do in response to this? There is an enforcement notice that's been put out that requires them to take certain steps. The response to this must be that the use of data by the police and by governing authorities probably needs to change. There needs to be a fundamental rethink with the way that data is used in a clandestine way and how individual representations are kind of taken away in a, a, as an afterthought to, to policing needs. What does this tell us about how the future of data by public authorities are going to be used? How can we actually increase the care that's brought around the data so that we can have things like gangs matrix that sound to be regrettable but necessary in a dangerous world? How can we actually create the institutions of oversight and care and the best practices that are needed if we're going to use data in this way? There is a fundamental shift in the way people are understanding data and the use of data by public authorities and the impact of data on our day-to-day lives. You can see data in the political context, for example. People are saying we need a code of practice for the way political campaigning and data gets used. We probably need to extrapolate those same principles to the way public authorities use data more generally. You can see it with facial recognition technology and you can see it with the gang's matrix. Isn't there some sort of omnibudsman uh, in the Metropolitan Police who should have been surveying how they handle data or are we not yet there yet in terms of the institutions and practices around handling data? Well, I think the ICO played that ombudsman role and I think that this is it's, it's pretty... I was really impressed with the level of investigation that they did and with their findings. I think their conclusions are very strong and they're also doing a subsequent investigation now looking at the other public authorities beyond the Metropolitan Police who also handle this same database. And I think that they, as we have legislation like the GDPR recently come in, it's not just about kind of sanctions here. It is about helping public authorities to ultimately use data. Of course, you need better information sharing between agencies, between the police, between the various public services, but it has to be done in a way that has tr- is transparent, 
based on human rights and has really strong oversight in place. And I think this is not about rights getting in the way of innovation. This is about rights being part of innovation. And data will have a much better impact if it's done with due respect to human rights. Ravi, Tanya, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ken. We reached out to the Met Police for comment, but we didn't hear back in time. However, previously they did release a statement, and it says in part... As well as addressing the concerns within the ICO report, we're also taking forward additional work, including the introduction of a public-facing website to explain the legal framework for the gangs matrix and further information to improve public confidence and transparency. We have a constructive relationship with the ICO and will continue to work with them as we go forward, unquote. So we've just looked at some of the dangers of data when they're not held with the care that they require. To get a more positive vision of how data can be used responsibly, I left the studio and went to King's Cross in London to learn about a pioneering initiative by the Open Data Institute that they began this week. I'm here at the Open Data Institute Summit 2018 in London to speak to Jenny Tennyson, the chief executive of the Open Data Institute, and Peter Wells, the head of public policy at the ODI, about a new trial that they have just announced on data trusts. Now, these data trusts would be third-party intermediaries which would hold the data in trust, like a fiduciary in financial services, for the entity or entities that might want to process the data or have the data processed. The idea came from a major report last year by the UK government's Office for Artificial Intelligence, and the ODI works in partnership with the office, as well as with local governments and businesses, for the pilot. Jenny and Peter, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. So first, have I accurately described what a data trust is, or would you say that it's something different still? Because it's pretty novel. Well, we started off researching data trusts um, in around April this year, and actually trying to dig into what people mean by a data trust was one of the first things that we did. We looked at about 18 different definitions that, that people use, ranging from places that you can store personal data for, for the use of others, to, to ones that are really focused around around access for researchers or access for for building AI. And so the definition that you folks have sort of held on to is the one in which you're offering access to researchers. The model we're exploring could be researchers, it could be businesses, it could be communities and civil groups, it could be the public sector. So you're announcing some trials. What are you doing? So over this period with three different groups of data holders and the data subjects and data reusers for that data, we'll be working to explore what's an appropriate legal structure, what could be the purpose of that data trust. And what's the project? What's actually physically happening? So Greenwich Local Authority in London, it's data collected about the city, about the places. Now that could be air quality data, it could be traffic congestion data. So it's different kinds of urban data, which has been collected and shared through a platform. And we want to explore with the city, with Greenwich Council, with Greenwich citizens and businesses who might use it there, is a data trust going to increase trust in that data and help people use it more to solve problems? I think one of the challenges that we see in in the kind of smart city arena is that the organisations that put in sensors, they put in the means of managing data, 
often end up being the only ones that control access to it as well. So for me, one of the, the really interesting things about this pilot is how we open up that access, how we make it more trustworthy for the citizens about whom this data is. Now, when the UK government tried to do something similar like this years ago with healthcare data in a project called Care.Data, they really botched it because it was really miscommunicated and also they were licensing the data that people thought perhaps shouldn't go into the marketplace. What are you doing to prevent the same sort of botch up? For us, one of the things that really went wrong was the lack of engagement throughout with the people that were going to be affected by it. One of the things that we're hoping to do is look at the mechanisms for engagement with the people affected by that data to keep them on the same journey, to to make sure that they're not surprised suddenly by, by what gets used from that data. This is a fascinating experiment. Jenny, Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. While I was at the summit, I also met up with Sir Nigel Shadbolt, the co-founder and chairman of the ODI. Nigel is a professor of computer science at Oxford and the principal of Jesus College. The ODI has called on big web platforms like Google, Apple, and Uber to share its mapping data to encourage innovation. So my first question is, what are you asking for and why is it so important? Well, this goes back to a long-standing belief that both Tim Berners-Lee and I had right at the outset of the enterprise to open up the data that government collected as open data, government that is paid for by the taxpayer. And in particular, one of the key resources that we were uh, endeavouring to open up was geospatial data, mapping data. And we all know these maps. We loved them. They're the kind of uh, things that we've often hiked around the UK on. Uh, the Ordnance Survey, a national treasure. Well, we needed to get some of that data openly and freely available. And in various efforts over the years, we've got about 50% of the data that the Ordnance Survey holds available as open. And of course, there are many other map providers in the digital age, from Google Maps to maps provided by other agencies, mapping data that's collected by organizations like Uber. And it's our belief that the base reference data, the data fundamentally about where things are in the world, is a kind of infrastructure. It's a data infrastructure, just as important as railways and roads and the electricity grid. This is the digital representation of our spatial world, made available freely for every kind of service and app that requires a location to use. And we think that should be open. So why shouldn't it be a function of the state, if it is a public infrastructure, to collect and make available to the private sector? Why should the private sector that invests in its own technologies and techniques to get a leg up on the competition in mapping share some of that data with everyone else? Well, because we think that there are lots of examples where using some of your data assets in a broader way to make for more effective global services has advantages for everybody. Everybody's boat rises on this kind of tide. If we think about what used to happen with the GPS signal, which was a military encrypted signal actually that gave you precise location, when that was gradually made available as a free-to-use resource, it generated huge amounts of value. Now, you might say in that case, the interested parties were the, the American taxpayer invested all of this stuff. But that was a very, very uh, landmark key decision. Similar um, decision was taken with the human genome. That was uh, potentially going to be patented. That actual data structure that defines all of us made openly available. Mapping data, the spatial data, you could say, well, you know, companies 
uh, collect this, they enhance it at their their own expense. Why should they? Uh, we just think that so many of these services would add value to just the sorts of companies and services that Google wants to sell other services to. So the base level reference data, not the services on top of the mapping data, but the, the actual positional. Because in a sense, there isn't a var- variation of opinion as to where the building we're in at the moment is. You know, it's a fact in some sense of the built world we live in. This sounds communistic. You can take your, your, I don't think it's a communist notion at all, the idea that you would build a public good that both private and public partnerships could contribute to. It is asking the private sector to be even more gracious with its information than the public sector is. Well, at this stage, it's asking them to be uh, uh, gracious and to think about all of the other resources they can bring to bear. What kind of services can you imagine that this data would give rise to that are just not happening yet because the data is not available because it's not being made available for free? Well, if you think of all of the delivery services that we operate on, and so many of the kind of customized hyper-local delivery services, it's, you know, how to get your product from A to B. Companies, of course, we have uh, both Tim Berners-Lee and myself been arguing for a long time that the other endpoint of your mapping data is the address data. And we were dismayed, for example, when the postcode address file, which is all the legal addresses in the UK, was sold as part of the Royal Mail flotation. There were strong arguments both within cabinet, within government, and on the outside, saying that that had been built up out of public support for the public Royal Mail at that time, and that should have been kept as a piece of our national public data infrastructure, not privatised in a sense. And I think that's a good example where geospatial mapping data, address data, delivery data form a perfect complement where you can then Imagine lots of localized services building maps for their purposes with their modifications, with their requirements on top of existing open infrastructure. Nigel, this is fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this week. If you have any thoughts on the mishandling of data or the role that data trusts can play to spur innovation, email us at radio at economist.com or reach us on Twitter at Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London... This is The Economist. Sir Nigel Shalbolt. Shalbolt. Shad Bolt. Shad Bolt. God. Shad. 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 <clears throat> Sir Nigel Shalbolt. Shad. Shad Bolt. That's I can it. say it. That's I can right. Say yeah. it. I've been saying it. He was it a jailer in Wilfred Shadbolt, was in Yeoman of the Guard, Gilbert and Sullivan opera as well. There you go. Who Shad knew that? Shad a Bolt. famous artist in Canada. Why can't you have like a simple name like Kukier? Yeah, I know. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yes, you know. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 